to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. The priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and his supremacy and glory as the great high priest God has provided in his wisdom and love for men. Again, let me remind you of the relevance of that in every man's situation because every man's basic need, whether he knows it or not, is for a priest. That's the point of this. It's not just ancient Jewish folklore, you see. Every man's fundamental need is for a priest simply because every man's ultimate reason for being in the world is that he might know God, that he might be brought to God and enjoy communion with God and live for the glory of God. And that's why we are in the world. That's really why there is a world for man. That God has put us here for this basic purpose. It's the great raison d'etre of our living. And because we are sinners who cannot get to God for ourselves, whose communion with God has been broken, whose lives have been perverted so that we live for our own glory rather than for his glory. Our great need is for a mediator, for a priest who will bring us into the presence of God. Because in the Bible, the priest's great ministry is to secure and bring about the fellowship of sinful men with a holy God. His ministry is to gain and secure access for us into God's presence. And this all the way through is what the priest's great purpose is. And this whole section of Hebrews is therefore setting forth Jesus as the great high priest whom God has provided, for whom every other priest, in the Old Testament economy was a shadow telling us that there was a reality beyond. Every other priest was a pointer showing us in some sense Jesus as the great high priest God was to provide. Now in chapter 8 we saw the five marks of what the writer of the epistle calls in chapter 8, verse 6, Christ's more excellent ministry. And the whole of this epistle is exalting Jesus. His ministry is a more excellent ministry. His priesthood is a more excellent priesthood. Everything in Jesus is better. And this is the great theme of Hebrews. Now the more excellent ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as a high priest is marked by five things. One, he is seated, not standing, in token of his work being finished and not incomplete in chapter 8 verse 1. Secondly, in the same verse, he is in the place of sovereignty and not of servitude at the right hand of the majesty on high. And therefore our Lord Jesus Christ is ministering in the place of supreme power and authority. There is nothing beyond his control or out with his power. Thirdly, he ministers in the real tabernacle, not the shadowy one. He is a minister, verse 2 of chapter 8, in the sanctuary and the true tent, which is set up not by men but by the Lord. 
And verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus is ministering in the real tabernacle, not the shadowy one. Fourthly, he offers a perfect and final sacrifice and not an imperfect and temporary one. His sacrifice is a sacrifice which produces an eternal salvation. Fifthly, he is the mediator of a new covenant which fulfills and replaces the old one. And the second half of chapter 8 is taken up with setting forth the glories of the new covenant which Christ is the mediator of and which he is sealed with his blood and we saw that basically this new covenant is designed by God and has been his purpose from the time he revealed himself as a covenant-making God to Abraham. What Abraham pointed to and looked for was this fulfillment of all the, the signs and shadows of the Old Testament that in Jesus Christ God was setting his seal to a new covenant in which he would put the law of God into the hearts of men. I will put my law in their heart, in their minds and write them on their hearts. Chapter 8 verse 10. That it will bring the knowledge of God into the experience of men. They will no longer say to each other, know the Lord, because they shall all know me from the greatest even to the least. And finally, it will banish the sins of men from the memory of God. I will be merciful, verse 12, toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, basically, that was the ground we covered last week, and you may be saying, why can't he always do it as quickly as that? But we said uh, a little more last week. The question that arises for some last week, and may I just touch on it before we move on, is this. What then are we to say of these Old Testament saints and their salvation? So many of them who appear to have the knowledge of God in their hearts, who experience the glory of salvation and the banishing of their sins from the memory of God. In what sense are we able to say that these Old Testament saints under the Old Covenant were therefore truly and fully saved and knew the fullness of the blessings of God's grace? Well, the answer, of course, is that Abraham and all the Old Testament saints who are in glory this evening are there because of the blessings of the new covenant that came in Jesus Christ. And they came into the blessings of salvation in the same way that we come into the blessings of salvation through God's electing love and through faith in his mercy in Jesus Christ. Now the Old Testament saints' faith is faith in Jesus. It's not faith in anything else. They are saved by faith in Jesus. But it is faith that looks forward to Jesus, to the promised Messiah, whereas we are saved by a faith that looks back to Jesus. But it is the same Jesus that we look whether forward to or back to. And the faith of Abraham 
was a faith that Jesus fully explains in these terms. Abraham, he says, saw my day and was glad. Now what Abraham's faith reached out to, you see, was the coming Christ. And the blood of Jesus covered the sins of Old Testament saints who truly believed before his coming as his blood deals with our sins after his coming. And it's an important thing for us to see that the ground on which the Old Testament saints are saved is no different from the ground on which New Testament saints are saved. Now in chapter 9 the apostle goes on to show how the arrangements for approaching God and seeking atonement for sin under the old covenant provide a shadow of the perfect way of approaching God and finding atonement in the death of Jesus. And the first part of chapter 9 is supremely about this. Now the basis on which he begins to argue is really the institution of the tabernacle which is described in Exodus chapters 25 to 30 and I commend the reading of that to you uh, to give you the background of this. We don't have time to, to do it this evening. But in Exodus chapter 24 you will remember God made his covenant with his redeemed people. And the covenant is made in chapter 24. The tabernacle is set up in chapter 25 to 30. You get all the details of how men are to approach God, how they are to come into his presence, how atonement is to be made for their sin. And the writer's whole point in referring to the tabernacle here at the beginning of chapter 9, called the tent in the RSV, but it's just the Old Testament. <coughs> Excuse me, tabernacle. His point is that the tabernacle itself points beyond itself as a temporary symbol of what was yet to come, which was God's perfect way of drawing near to him through Christ's death. Now, the theme of verses 1 to 10 is twofold. And it is first of all the structure of the tabernacle in verses 1 to 5. And then the service of the tabernacle as symbols of the priesthood of Christ. Now I said I would show you a diagram which I used once in New Mills to the amusement of many people. Um, when we were studying the tabernacle. I don't have a model of the tabernacle. Oh, can you see it? No, you can't, perhaps. Can you? Um, if I put it there, you'll not be able to see it. There are some people who get some most marvelous models of the tabernacle. When I was a young Christian, there was a man who used to go around all the meetings in Glasgow uh, with his model of the tabernacle. It was a remarkable thing because it was flat when you saw it at first, but he had a little string he pulled, and when he pulled the string, the tabernacle, you know, it rises on poles and there are, there's cloth all around it, and the tabernacle, like one of these stand-up pictures, I see some of you have been there, he, he pulled the string and the whole thing went up, you know. And um, one famous occasion, as you can remember, doubtless imagine, uh, he was just at the height of expounding to us the significance of, 
the 13th pole up this side in the tabernacle when suddenly there was a crash and the whole tabernacle fell down uh, before us. The tabernacle consisted basically, and this is a crude oversimplification, of um, an outer court. The outer court of the tabernacle was about a hundred feet long. I don't know how long this hall is, but you can imagine a fairly substantial size. And here, at the entry to it, was the altar of burnt offering. And the altar in which all the burnt offerings were made and uh, the, the animals were slain was here in the outer court, signifying that the way of entering into God's presence and having dealing with him at all was by the way of atonement, by the shedding of blood. The great repetition in all that the tabernacle speaks to us of is this. And here is the laver where the priests washed the need for cleansing and the need for atonement going together. Now inside this large uh, court, the outer court, inside it, there were two boxes, really. That's what these two places are. One rectangular, called the holy place, and that's the larger of the two, and one a cube, called the holiest of all, or the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And this was the place against which a curtain, across which a curtain was raised. And another curtain here, the holy place, was a place into which not anybody could go except he was a priest. And the priests were able freely to enter in and out of this larger area, and that was the place where they ministered. There was the table of showbread here, and there the priests would go in and out to replenish the bread. There was the seven-branched candlestick, or perhaps more correctly, six branches with the middle spike on it. And then here, the altar of incense, the golden altar of incense, which spoke of the prayers of the Lord's people. Then this veil and the smaller area, the holiest place of all, and that's the place that the writer is speaking about, into which not only did the people not go, but the priests couldn't go. And this was the place where in a special sense God's presence and glory as the Holy One was to be known and found. And into this the high priest went once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he went there to offer. He went, went in actually twice. Once to offer for his own sin and on the second occasion to offer for the sins of the people. And here there was the Ark of the Covenant and on top of it the Mercy Seat and above that the cherubim speaking of the glory of the presence of God. Now, that may give you some vague uh, and crude idea of what the writer is speaking about when he talks about the tabernacle. That's the basic structure, and it was all symbolic, of course, in a very real way. Of course, the writer says uh, of these things at the end of verse 5, we cannot now speak in detail. But the the whole structure of the tabernacle had a significance, and it was a symbol, of course, of God's past dealing with his people. It was the way by which God had ordered that his people would come. 
uh, to him. And here we have one of these signposts of the way by which God was yet one day to order his people's approach to him and especially the atonement of their sin. The service of the tabernacle is the other thing that he speaks of. You will notice all of these details I've been mentioning from verse 2 onwards. A tent was prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. There also, incidentally, at the second curtain uh, is the golden altar of incense. And then in the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, which contained these various uh, reminders of God's present and past dealings with them. It contained Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, the evidence of God's revelation of his will for his people were there and the signs in the manner of God's gracious provision. So much that was intended to call Israel to remember what kind of God they were dealing with in his grace and in his faithfulness. Now the service of the tabernacle from verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go continually into the outer tent performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary is not yet opened as long as the outer tent is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. Now this is the point of the service of the tabernacle you see. Even the priests couldn't go into the holy of holies. And when the high priest was entering that second curtain and going into the most holy place, he could only go when he confessed his own unfitness by taking blood for his own sins. There were two sacrifices that were made on the Day of Atonement mainly. And you can read all this in Leviticus chapter 16. The first sacrifice was the sacrifice of a bullock. And that was made by the great high priest for his own sin and the sin of his family. It was a sacrifice because he was confessing as he came to this holiest place that he himself was a sinner. And then he came back out having had this offering made and accepted by God. He came back out and then he took a goat and confessed the sins of the people, symbolically transferred them to the goat, and the goat was slain, and the blood of the goat was taken. And he bore that blood into the sanctuary for the sake of the people's sins. Now, there was another goat which isn't spoken of uh, here and isn't part of the point that he's speaking of here, but of great significance. The second goat was not slain 
You read through Leviticus chapter 16 and see that that's the shadow. Jesus is the fulfillment. The second goat was taken and the hands of the priest again put upon it and the sins of the people confessed over it and as it were symbolically transferred to it. And then that goat was taken and was loosed in the wilderness, never to be seen again. It was sent out into a land of forgetfulness, into a place of desolation. And it was abandoned. That was the significance of this goat, which has put a, a phrase into our vocabulary. We speak of the scapegoat. Now that goat was the scapegoat and was taken there to be abandoned to desolation in a place that was God forsaken and forsaken by men. Now our Lord Jesus is the fulfillment, you see, of all of this sacrificial system. And he is the fulfillment of the animal that was taken and slain and became the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And his blood was the blood by which atonement was made. But he also fulfilled that other picture in that he was taken and in the ultimate anguish and agony of his suffering he was to experience the abandonment that sin brought and the desolation in a place that was forsaken by God and men crying out from the cross, why hast thou forsaken me? Now that is the fulfillment, you see, of our Lord Jesus of this system. And the epistle to the Hebrews is constantly bringing this before us. This is what all that was pointing to. It's all shadow, you see. And the trouble with these Jews was that they were being taken up with the shadow. And they hadn't got right through to the reality. And the apostle says, these things are symbols of what was yet to come. And on that day of atonement, the high priest entered into the holy place. Now, there are two things which are emphasized here. One is the splendor of this ritual and the solemnity of it. And Israel as a people is being taught, you see, at this point. And we are being taught as we study such Old Testament history as this. What God is impressing upon us here is the splendor of this occasion and the sheer solemnity of it. And you can't read through these chapters without getting a sense of solemnity and a sense of the care that God takes over every detail when he is set upon the atonement of his people's sins. But you know the other thing that is here too is the total ineffectiveness of this in the ultimate sense. Look at verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit, that is, by the ministry of the high priest, the Holy Spirit indicating that the way into the sanctuary is not yet opened as long as the outer tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various ablutions, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now look on at verse 13. If the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, that is the outward flesh, now, what is he saying that the 
blood of bulls and goats and all of this system did. It served to purify the outward flesh. It made a man ceremonially clean. And what was happening, you see, was that when they went through this arrangement that God had given them, they had ceremonial cleanness, ceremonial purity. And they went through a ceremony which brought this cleanness. Because, you see, there was such a thing as ceremonial impurity. You will probably know that in the Old Testament, when a man touched a dead body, he became ceremonially unclean. And there were various periods in people's lives when they were ceremonially unclean. And these sacrifices and offerings and the sprinkling of blood upon people made them ceremonially all right. Now you can apply the parallel, can't you? There are certain ceremonies within the Christian church that can make you ceremonially all right. But I tell you what these ceremonies could not do. They couldn't bring moral cleansing. They couldn't produce moral purification. They had no moral dynamic. But just as the new covenant brings a moral dynamic within it, I will put my law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. So the blood of the new covenant brings moral cleansing to the conscience. And all oh, that's what these people were crying out for, you see. They needed God. And they needed to come not into a tabernacle made with hands. They needed to come right into the presence of God. They needed to know him. But they didn't have moral cleansing. And what that was all pointing to. And you can see in some sense, you know, I, I remember dear old Montague Goodman. How many of you knew Montague Goodman? You know, that was the great benefit to me of being at Hildenborough Hall as a student. I used to go to work every summer at Hildenborough Hall as a student and some of these great old boys came there and one of them was Montague Goodman. i never forget him. I used to love watching him eating soup at the table with the great big long moustache that he had. <laughs> but I loved even more listening to him when he was, I remember, expounding the tabernacle to us. The tabernacle was one of his great subjects. And he expounded the tabernacle. I remember him saying... Every inch of that cloth, every foot of these poles, every element in that tabernacle had hands that reached out for Jesus and cried, Come, Lord Jesus. And oh, that's gloriously true, you see. That's what the tabernacle is doing, reaching out for Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you knock microphones away. If you get Jesus, you see, that's the thing that really counts. What a glorious thing to know that here God is pointing to us, showing us in all the signs of this glorious structure that there is a Christ who is to come. And what does he say? Now listen, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the most holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
Now, do you notice that I corrected the translation of the authorized version in verse 11? When Christ appeared as a high priest, not of good things that are to come, but of good things that have come. Because the glory of Christ's sacrifice, of the blood of the new covenant, is that we have the good things in Christ. We are no longer waiting for them. We have them. They are ours in him. Access to the living God. We are all priests now. You see, that's the priesthood of all believers, beloved. The priesthood of all believers does not mean that every believer is a minister or a teacher. That's a gross misunderstanding of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers means that every believer has the right of access into the presence of God for himself. That we go into the presence of God for ourselves and draw near to him. The great blessing, you see, of the priesthood of all believers is not ministry in public, but communion in private. Communion with God, knowing him as your father, entering into his presence, enjoying him. No longer saying, know the Lord, because we know him. Oh, that's what the priesthood of all believers means. It means access. Our Christ priesthood has therefore gained and secured what the old ceremonies failed to secure. What priesthood pointed to Christ has obtained. That's the first thing. He has secured what they failed to secure. Secondly, he has made a decisive entry into the real holy of holies and secured an eternal redemption through his blood. Not a temporary covering of sin, do you notice at the end of verse 12, but an eternal redemption through his own blood. And the fact is, you see, that he was able to do this because he had no sin of his own to atone for. He was the first figure to draw near to the holy place with no sin of his own to atone for. And therefore, in the presence of God, he was the solitary man in the universe who had acceptance with the God who dwells in holy light. That is what makes Jesus a singular high priest. And he secures thereby an eternal redemption. How much more shall the blood of Christ and thirdly, his priesthood contains not only the power for moral cleansing, but the power for new living. Do you notice this? The blood of the covenant purifies your conscience, the end of verse 15, from dead works to serve the living God. That's what the blood of Jesus does, beloved. It does not just purify your conscience from dead works. 
It purifies you for service of the living God so that you might enter right into his presence and serve him as one day you will serve him day and night in his temple. Because you see there is another sense in which although we have the good things that are to come, we share this with the Old Testament saints that there is yet more that God has for us that he has already gained through Christ's covenant blood and sacrifice. And that is what we are yet to know and receive and experience in the heavenly glory. There is a sense in which for the child of God the best is yet to be. Now as we finish, will you notice the necessity of this death? Why is it that he had to die? Well, he summarizes this at the end of verse 22 by saying, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. On this one of the old writers says, the reason that there is no shedding of blood without the, the, for, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood is that there is nothing in the whole universe so costly as sin. There is nothing in the whole universe so costly as sin. And it is not the blood of bulls or goats that will take it away, but the blood of Jesus and that blood shed in the tabernacle offerings was a symbol that God's way of bringing the remission of sins to his people is by the shedding of blood a righteous holy just God demands that sin as a price and a judgment. So Christ is the mediator of a new covenant through his blood. And you notice how he brings out another element in the word covenant, which as I was saying is translated not only covenant but will or testament in verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now do you notice what he is saying, and it's of great significance. The whole point is, you see, that this covenant is to be seen in another sense, says the writer to the Hebrews, like a will. And since the same word means both, it has both applications. It is not only a covenant in the sense in which we were thinking last week. It is a will, like a will that a man makes when he has his wealth, all his riches that he is going to leave to someone. Now you see, if in my will I had left you a thousand pounds... And uh, you will realize that this is one of these illustrations that is drawn from the world of absurdity. But if in my will I had left you a thousand pounds, 
you would not receive that thousand pounds until I had died because the will is ineffective. Until I die, it takes death to bring a will into effect. Now here do you see how the writer is, is bringing this as another element in his understanding of this covenant. It is like God making a will to his people. And that will he is making in Christ. And in Christ this covenant is like a last will and testament that God is making. And it is sealed, it is made effective, its riches are suddenly opened up to you in the death of the testator who is Jesus. And by his death, he says, he has made open to us all the riches of his grace and the good things of his covenant mercy. Now that is the sense in which Jesus has become the mediator of a new covenant to us. The blood of the covenant has been shed and a way has been opened for us into the holiest. We may come not to the shadow but to the reality. And the riches of God's abundance. Fancy what God leaves to his children as it were in Christ. Can you think of it? The vast untold wealth of God's grace. And in Christ's death that has been opened up to every believer. This is the covenant that God has made. I notice someone says, interestingly, that Jesus has not only by his death brought his covenant or will into operation, but by his rising again, he has become the executor of it to see that it is properly executed. And as a living Savior, he executes the terms of his covenant. In his grace, God has made a way for us through the veil, which chapter 10 tells us that veil that was rent. And oh, the infinite cost of our entering in the blood of Jesus is the blood through which he entered and we enter. The veil that was rent, chapter 10 says, do you remember it? The veil is his flesh. And by the rending of his flesh, he says, a way has been made open. And the new and living way is the way that Jesus made for us into the holiest. How strange, how passing strange that we are so slow to come to him. Let us pray together.
Lord, we marvel as we bow before thee at the wonders of thy grace and the riches of thy mercy in Jesus Christ, that thou hast brought us nigh into the glorious, blinding light of the Holy of Holies, where clothed in Christ, made fit in his righteousness to draw near to thee, cleansed in his blood, we may boldly approach the throne of thy grace. We shall never be able to understand it, but, oh, we pray that thou wilt draw us nigh and enable us that we may glory more and more in the priesthood, the royal priesthood to which thou hast raised us. Blessed Lord, hear our prayer and take us forth this evening enriched by the abundance of thy grace. And to thy name we give all the honor and praise and glory for all that thou art through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.